All-Ireland final in 2018. Watched it in Cook Park and I thought I was going to throw up. Like it just, it was a horrible feeling. You wanted to win, but you just felt like, oh my God, if, if they do win, they haven't been there. Like, is it worth it being over here? Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Wednesday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. The terrible twosome are here and smugness levels are off the charts. Thornley straight in. 10 to 15, what did we tell you? <laughs> yes, you told us. Jerry Thornley, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Joe. Andy Dunn, you're very welcome as well. Thanks, Joe. Uh, you weren't wrong. Did you waver at any stage during that match or confident throughout? I... I wavered once for two minutes immediately after Penno's try and the Marseillaise reverberated around Aviva and Thomas Ramos was kicking the conversion I went oh dear I might have got this completely wrong they've turned up (laughs) they don't normally run from deep like this despite having Damien Penno on their team they don't normally they just kick it from their own half and then Johnny Sexton took the kick off and as he was taking the kick off I said sure of course this team is next moment focused they don't worry about things like that Mm. And within 42 seconds, they'd scored through James Lowe. There was, was a period it. where every bouncing ball seemed to find a French, French yeah. player. Mm. So, yeah, you didn't feel it was enough to swing the tie, but it was kind of, is this going to be one of those days? Mm-hmm. But of course it wasn't. Andy Dunn. So I'm not going to pretend you haven't just told this, this story off <laughs> air. It blew my mind. I mean, I've laughed. I'm not, I'll, I'll try and fake laugh for you uh, on air. You Tell to. the listeners what you did. Well, I'm... Um, I don't know, is it better to be famous or infamous? <laughs> I may, had things gone wrong, I may have been infamous, but um, the way the media gantry is set up, I was in the second row and immediately pre-kickoff, a gentleman came in and sat in front of me in the first row with a, a large amp and a laptop and he opened it up and my view was very obstructed. Um, game kicked off, he didn't move anything and I couldn't, he couldn't hear me because he had earphones and... So I tried to reach him by tapping him on the shoulder, but I've short little arms and I couldn't get to him. Um, I couldn't shout at him. So I leaned over and hit him gently. I tried to hit him on the shoulder with the news talk microphone, but I couldn't reach that. So I got I tapped him on the head and he didn't. That was a little bit uh, antagonistic. So he turned around and, and wasn't happy. Um, I tried it a second time, less happy. And I tried it a third time, at which point we came to a loud exchange. Um, and I said, I can't see, I'm trying to commentate. And he said, I can't operate the Skycam if you're shouting at me. And literally at that moment, the ref blew the whistle because James Lowe had hit the Skycam with the football. <laughs> and he, uh, yeah, we both panicked. I just, I literally retreated <laughs> into my seat. Um, yeah, so, wow. and then their first scrum, wow. yeah. It was, it, was, it was hilarious in hindsight because you don't <laughs> want, I mean, that was a James Lowe sweet connection. That would have gone 60 metres. Mm. And I believe, you know, Don Lennon was saying things like, you know, we're this technology gets found out always. And um, <laughs> the poor guy took a hiding from his producer as well. He told me at half time, I apologised, but we got a we we being Ireland got away with it. And I'm, I'm glad we didn't get drilled on a, on a scrum on our own 22 because I'm tapping a guy in the head with a microphone. So. That poor man, he genuinely he's in big trouble right now. Well, I, we, we kissed and made up at half time. I apologised. I mean, I did have a fair argument. I, mm-hmm. Like, you've completely obstructed my view with the laptop and the machine. But he, he'd <laughs> of, been there. Of the before. greatest 40 minutes of Six Nations yes, rugby yes. in history at the FIFA Stadium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad it just passed by ultimately <laughs> after that without any 
incident. I can but you just, couldn't write it. Oh my like, God. What are the odds? I can he's just imagine your face when you realise, oh. No, okay. he, was, he was mid-shout, like, I'm operating the Skycam. <laughs> I can't change. And he just stops. <laughs> Obviously hearing it in his ear. Okay. So at that point, you have to say, maybe your need is greater. I'll yes, I just sat, I slid back into my seat quite okay. low. We will get to the game. Obviously, it's been, <laughs> it's been much discussed at this stage. But one other uh, brief tangent. I uh, opened my Irish Times. I thought Thornley has done it again. Irish fans need to raise their game. The headline. So there are various uh, aspects in you in which you feel that uh, the Aviva at large could raise its game. Uh, for a start, the ticketing situation is kind of interesting. You you dug into the figures. Um, once you strip away corporate tickets, once you strip away the 5,000 tickets that the French Union receive. Hospitality, hospitality and 10-year tickets. Yes. You make it that we're at about 30,000 tickets, yeah. give or take, which go to the clubs all around the country. And you suspect it's it's somewhere from those 30,000 that the French nod their extra five 6,000. Why is this happening? Clubs need money. Okay. It costs about 250, 350, maybe more, half a million to run a club. Like I was at a a Connacht derby earlier this season. After a Connacht game, I decided to stay over on a Saturday night because it's Galway. <laughs> and uh, on the Sunday, Galwegians were playing Corinthians, so I went along to this derby. And I remember speaking to them afterwards, and they said it cost about 350 grand each to run their clubs. And they're running women's sections, they're running youth sections, mini rugby sections. Electricity bills are going through the roof to run heating, floodlights for training during the week. It's, it's a, and they literally start every season from scratch and just beg, steal, borrow, you know do club draws, get sponsors in and just do the best they can. And I would imagine a certain number of a certain allocation go to hospitality events. You know, they can charge a thousand quid with packages or whatever else. And it's it's an invaluable money earner for them. So if the French are doubling their tickets from around about four, the official was at 4,700 to nine or 10 or maybe even 11,000, many of them, it sounded like about 20,000, didn't it? Because the Irish fans were comparatively muted yeah. for large tracks of the game. Heaven knows how many then are not really going to club members. And <clears throat> whenever I address this subject, Joe, I am inundated in my email box with WhatsApp messages, people coming up to me in the street, so forth, calls, everything. Uh, largely from club members who just say they just can't get tickets anymore. They've been priced out of it. It's just too expensive to come to Dublin as well, on top of everything else. Like, I got a couple of tickets for a, a couple of people and they were like 135 a shot. Mm. I mean, add in the, the cost of coming to Dublin if you're coming from the, around the country, maybe even an exorbitant one-night stay in Dublin. Yeah. God bless them. Three star, a grand a night, whatever it is. Paddy's weekend, for example, I imagine the problem's going to be even greater. Mm. Um, so, I got, of all the emails I got yesterday, one that was struck the biggest chord with me was one guy who said he'd been going there for 30 years, 40 years, whatever, a long, long time um, attendee at Irish matches. And he said, 20, 30 years ago, he would have known, looking around near him, he would have recognised 100 to 150 faces. Now he's lucky if he can recognise five. I thought that struck a chord with me as well. So something's changed with the demographic of the crowd. I just feel that, like, I accept that we can't have it every way. When Irish fans invade Twickenham, there's 15,000 up there in Baltic Paddy's weekend in 2018 for see Ireland win the, the Grand Slam and at the end of the game, it's like it's suddenly Ireland have just taken over this corner of South West London. It's magnificent. And the Six Nations is all about the convivial way away fans and home fans mix. It's not like the Southern Hemisphere. It's not, apart from the World Cup, there's no other tournament quite like it. It's great. And the French fans were magnificent. Magnificent they were. I just feel that when an Irish team 
has just set up a record 13 home wins in a row when an Irish team that's possibly the best team Ireland have ever had, when an Irish team might be going for a Six Nations or maybe even a Grand Slam for the first time ever in Dublin in the final round mm. against England. I don't want to be listening to Swing Low Sweet Chariot for the afternoon. Yeah. You hate to hear of fans being priced out of it though. It's such yeah. an awful yeah. thought. Yeah. Fans who are, I presume, going to games right around the calendar year and then when the bandwagon events come along they're priced out. And, and it's this army of volunteers that are partly responsible for how well Irish rugby is doing because every single one of those Irish players started out probably, certainly the, the indigenous ones, started out playing mini rugby with a volunteer coach. From the RFU's did, point sure. of view though, uh, these are the two to three games each year where they make so much of their money. Absolutely. And if this is the going rate, this is the going rate. And this is the price they can, you know, people will pay this price for these tickets. And part of the problem, of course, as well, is that the Aviva is by some distance the smallest of the Six Nations grants. So in the years that France and England come calling particularly, yeah. they're highly prized. They reckon about 15,000 French people actually made the journey and four or 5,000 didn't even get tickets. And certainly I saw several of them around town begging for tickets, signs up. I saw them uh, when I went and collect my own accreditation the Friday, there was a clutch of them outside to see if they could get tickets from anywhere. So there was huge demand. Uh, there's a story on the Irish Times website just gone up. IRFU have contacted Gardaí because there are tickets for the England game on different websites priced between, depending on the tickets, between €890 Euro and €3,120 Euro for the England game already. Uh, which again is a grim state of affairs and we may well have 10,000 English fans pitch up at the Aviva Stadium. I mean, the IRFU will never move away, I presume, from just handing over 30,000 tickets to the clubs and just sell them directly. That doesn't solve the problem, I suppose, in any great way. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think, I suggest they should, because the tickets haven't gone out yet, then again, it might already be too late. They've been promised, I'd say, a lot of them already in certain ways or form, that they remind the clubs that please, 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 you've got a duty here to have club members come to these games. But it's also illegal. Like, Leo Varadkar brought in legislation only in 2021 to outlaw this practice. So I did suggest in the column as well that this should be looked into before the England game rather than after. My own club, Olbev, dear, maybe I'm naive, but they, they've been very clear with membership I got two tickets um, but they're very clear that if the tickets are traceable to not be used by club members the the allocation is impacted that's what, what I was told as a club member from mm-hmm. Bevan. I don't I don't know am I being naive because there was a very clear um, you know very clearly uh, like when I got into the ground there was there was way more French in the ground than there was in Irish. And that's the other thing, they came... They, they came early. They came early. singing for the team, coming yeah. out and the French team came out in the warm-up. I was chatting to John Duggan in studio here and I could barely hear him. That The game was... This is 30 minutes before the game. All the Irish were having points and a bit of crack. But yeah, I don't know where... where I don't know where the, how traceable the tickets are and who uses them, but I know firmly like that's been communicated to club members in my own club that you if you're buying your tickets you're using them and would, if they were of a mind to I'm sure they'd be very traceable and they could just glance at CCTV and spot the blue jerseys where yeah the old I would have thought modern day technology should be yeah. my brother and my dad were in the seats I had that's fair enough they're members too so it was my brother's 50th yeah so. no that's allowed I guess it's one of those things we'll see how many English fans pitch up um, on Paddy's weekend it helps that the French fans have as we were talking off air that they have a ready made chant we were talking about this like, les, les it only takes about one pocket of about 30 of them to start it up and then all the other pockets join in yes Irish rugby doesn't have a real ready-made chant like you were saying come on you boys in green or an Irish football chant maybe it's time we adopted one I don't know and also 
I don't know, they need another song. I mean, it's lots and lots of Irish fans said this to me after, they need another song. So at the moment, is it basically just Fields of Athenry? Yep, that's all. And in fairness, there was about three good renditions of it during the game, which is three times more than we had all three home games last season. When it's you remember it's the certainly not as uplifting as Alela Bleu. No, it's not. And of course, there's no anthem in the world quite like sure. the Marseillaise. What are we adopting then? What do we need to get in here post haste? We're, we're managed by a gritty northern Englishman. So I think we should have ole, 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 like the Jack Charlton. Yes. Yeah. Part of Andy's army. I mean, it speaks to the lack of imagination, I suppose, and creativity. But listen. I mean, somebody, the, the Liverpool fans, I don't particularly like, you know, the ole, ole, ole. That li- but Jamie Webster, a Liverpool musician, wrote a song and it's oh, caught on. Like there's, there's nothing stopping someone mm-hmm. Irish and we're full of a country full of poets and musicians. The Welsh, fan, the Welsh someone fans. Someone write a new one. The Welsh soccer like, fans have adopted a new yeah, song. As like, well. I mean, yeah. it's a very interesting broader conversation, but I mean, I, I suppose the, the top 14 fans, football fans, certainly uh, cross channel and League of Ireland fans who go to Ireland games, they're all in the habit of going to games uh, weekly, bi-weekly, chance happen you know uh, organically yes whereas rugby fans uh, football fans who just go to Ireland matches uh, it's interesting in GAA I mean like there's an anthropology PhD and why the dubs aside there's not a singing culture in GAA Mm. so for whatever reason we just don't have it naturally Mm. Mm. so I don't know like if, if there was an Ireland rugby match on more than five times a year in Dublin there'd probably be more chance, mm-hmm. I, I dare say. Yeah, you're right. All the French fans there adopted one of the top 14 club chances, something like, hey, if uh, stand up if you're not French, or words to that effect. Uh, you know, okay. if, you, if, you're, if you're sitting down, you're not French. And they all, every single, all about, remember the 40 or 50 pockets of them, everywhere. It was just after Romain Taufi Fanua won the turnover penalty and into McFan touching halfway, about 15 minutes to go, and thinking, oh, jeepers. Like, you know, and then, thankfully, Ireland put in a brilliant defensive set. Caelan Doris went and did Caelan Doris, <laughs> and yeah. then Gary Reno's got his try, and that was that. But they all knew it from the fact that they were clearly club supporters coming over here so they could all adopt this one chant together. It speaks of where Irish rugby is that the uh, negative issues are all off the pitch. <laughs> Ticketing, singing, these are the burning issues right now because uh, on the field, uh, this has been talked about, Andy, as as good an Irish performance as we've seen ever. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree. There's, um, I think one of the most significant things of the overall performance, the, the first half, first 45 odd minutes being so electric we contributed to that hugely by our work rate and our creativity um, France contributed to it at times by their lack of accuracy which caused chaos and then the people like Dupont who created multiple prob- problems for himself and his team but had the talent to get himself out of it and suddenly by default France were breaking tackles and breaking our defensive line so it, it was this swashbuckling kind of 40, 45 minutes of rugby that was so entertaining. Um, I would agree, maybe the most entertaining 45 minutes in memory that I've seen. But what impressed me most was the the, the switch enforced due to personnel changes, the switch to a more kind of canny defensive approach in the last 25 minutes with clever kicks to the corner, more rooks. Um, holding possession in their territory, less dangerous, but um, doing, showing that you have a capacity to win in different ways and then showing you have a capacity to win with different personnel in different ways is a fe- fearsome enough combination when your first 
first out on the field, the, the front runners are playing so yes. exceptionally well. What's your sense of how this Irish team change tack in that way? Do you think verbally they get in a circle at some stage and say, all right, last 20, let's tighten things up and play in this more pragmatic way? Or does sometimes that just happen? Individuals sense it and, and the, the rest follow? There's, oh, no, I think there's... there's it's a tricky question. I suppose like I'm. It could be a different answer for different teams. Yeah, like and and different scenarios. You'd like to think a little bit of both, and I w- you know the 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 rugby IQ in that group and in the coaching group is is very very high, and um, I'm they can, clearly they can get <laughs> messages on very easily, but sometimes it's a little combination of both. But where. Often it doesn't work. Sometimes there's a message from the coaching team and sometimes there's fellas in the pitch who are saying it and it still doesn't work because not everyone's on board with it. Like people are at different levels of arousal on the field and your nervous system does funny things, you know. So to be able to just dial down intensity on cue, put put your foot on the ball, dampen the game down, eliminate French threat, see out the game. With you know, without your starting front row, one second row, Gibson Park, Sexton, Henshaw, and you know, close out a match is very impressive to me. It's incredible, really, how clever they've become. Like how pre-planned that try off the the goal line clearance has almost become like a fourth set piece, and that was all mm. set up even before the, it was taken that they knew what they're going to do. That you know, Keenan gave the ball to Doris to go through Antonio, which is, makes it all more possible, of course. And clearly, that was done work in the video analysis that they're not great at defending back inside the pillars, and so they moved that that old variation in a Joe Schmidt play. But even the amount of times Conor Murray had a little dart around the edge, that all suggests to me that this was kind of a tactic they had going into the game. And then also, <clears throat> are they the leaders of the fifty twenty two? They seem to be, you know. Um, they're so clever and they're varied in their kicking game. I think Johnny Sexton only kicked the ball once, whereas James Lowe kicked the ball ten times. And in both games, they got an early breakthrough try by working the ball to the left. And both times it looked as if James Lowe might have kicked too soon. But it's the variety of his kicks. He found grass and Wales led to the line-out try. This time he chipped wickedly at Ramos, who couldn't keep the ball in. That led ultimately to that first try. So they're... They're going wide, <laughs> they're going up the middle, they're going short back inside. It's just If you're an opposition coach, like, I don't know what you do with this Irish team now because there's such a variety and such an intelligence to what they do. And then to adopt a more pragmatic approach in the second half, we're six points up at home. You're the away side. You're going to start kicking the ball. But right, we're going to start kicking. And Ireland won the kicking game. Mm. They actually mm. not only outkicked France, but they actually won the kicking game mm. with that Craig Casey kick, even the Ross Byrne kick that went over the goal line. Like it just France were beaten almost at that point because the, the grip, this vice-like grip that Ireland were imposing with their kicking game. They just there's just so much variety and intelligence too, and as you say, the personnel changes. They're just a very smart, clever rugby team now. So by all means. At a World Cup, South Africa could double down on their approach and beat Ireland. France could do magical things and mm. beat Ireland. That's all very possible. But you would say, even listening to the way Jerry talks there, this Irish team is the most complete side in the world. Agree? Disagree? At the moment. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, my concerns pre the Six Nations, I, you know, when Gibson Park was ruled out an hour before the Welsh game, I, I was deflated because I felt he was so central to the tempo of the group and I also felt when he was replaced with Conor Murray that it would fundamentally change because I wrongly 
was viewing Murray as someone who hadn't the capacity to play high tempo anymore. Now, Murray was uh, on regular occasions kicking lots and I suppose the frustration for players when they're being viewed by pundits, sometimes the player is doing something that he's been asked to do in the situation. So it doesn't look great, but he's doing it for the greater good of the team or what he thinks is best. But there was no indication for, for me in the last couple of years that Murray had a high tempo game left in the tank. I, he was, a, I was thinking, a hugely experienced player with great physical durability, but not, not necessarily speed and sniping capacity. And certainly went out in that Welsh game and showed everyone he's perfectly capable of slotting in. So suddenly I was going from... Okay, we're we're in trouble if we lose lose Gibson Park. So we're not really in trouble if we lose Gibson Park because we've Murray. And then Casey comes off the bench, and I wasn't sure, you know, has Casey impactful enough? And then he makes that impact against the French. So you've got three of those. You've maybe Luke McGrath, who's out in the cold for some reason, like Ross Byrne has been. Like the, you've so much depth there. You've so much depth now at ten because you can clearly see Ross Byrne stepping up to the plate and. No one's mentioning Crowley, Carberry or Frawley. That's five who are all capable of doing a job. Your centres are excellent. Your your back three is exquisite. You've got one of the best back rows in the world. Maybe we could have a bit more depth and, and timber in the second row in terms of personnel. And then the front row, um, with with Furlong ruled out and the many question marks around Beatham, the scrum never went back once. And he does a little flick back inside to... to uh, Plus he's, got, plus he's got footwork. You know, plus his three, tackle count three, is good. Three world-class hookers. Like if Furlong comes back now, incredibly, you could say, you gotta, well, yeah. actually, Tyke, you can go on the bench, you can ease your way back. Yeah. Finn is starting again. Yeah. Which not many people would have believed possible before him. But could I just tell you something else a little bit about Conor Murray? Because we, we all admit it straight after, remember off-air last week, oh, we never mentioned Conor's performance in Cardiff, yeah. which was, you know, a mistake on all our parts. So we should have mentioned it because of how well he played. And shortly after that, I began to hear what had happened in his personal life with his dad. And, uh, and all through Thursday, and then, you know, it became clear that this had happened. And I presumed that Connor was not going to be playing. And on top of Dan Sheen, that's when my confidence started to waver a little bit, I must admit, because Dan Sheen, along with Caelan Dars, is probably t- our two most explosive ball carriers, Ireland's two most explosive ball carriers. And I just don't think people give credit to Conor Murray for 101 tests of experience and all that knowledge, the ability to take the ball in the air, the ability to be such a strong physical defender on the edge. Do you remember when he nabbed Tony, Toby Falatau at the base? Like, that's the difference possibly between Wales scoring seven points or three points. And it's just kind of taken as red that, that this just comes with Conor's game. But if Ireland had to start with Casey and Caelan Blade in the bench, I'd have been worried, a lot more worried than with Conor starting. I just think Conor bring so much canvas insurance. That was the 67th test with Johnny Sexton. Only Gregan and Larkin with the history of the game have played more tests. So they have this telepathic understanding now as well. And he, I just, I'd say when he walked back into that dressing room or that team room meeting on the Thursday night or the Friday night, I'd say it just gave everybody a huge lift in the squad and they even more determined to then do it for him. And to go out and play as well as he did, I mean, some people thought he was glory hunter. I think he was part of the original tactic. He was very close to scoring a try, which would have been great. Um, he did box kick more in the second half. I think that was more, again, part of some message that went out at half time mm. that, you know, let's, let's pin these guys. Let's keep the ball in play as well. Let's not put the ball out of play. That's, how, that's why there was 46 minutes, 10 minutes more than in Paris last year, and it definitely suited Ireland. So I just think that, you know, what, what Conor Murray did was quite extraordinary. I'm safely say very quickly that his mum and his sisters would have said, 
your dad would want you to play. And he did. And I'm hearing, hopefully, positive news coming out of the hospital about his dad. So it's, which is the most important thing, obviously. But I just think, I don't think Conor Murray gets the love he should get. <laughs> yeah. And psychologically, Farrell seems to really embrace scenarios. Now, this is a complete left field scenario. It's, it's unlikely to happen like that maybe ever again in, in a, with a player in the squad or it's certainly an outlier. But he does, Farrell seems to celebrate the unknown happening to the squad because he said these things are just going to happen again and again in tournament rugby and, you know, and I think it it's somewhat takes pressure off the group as well because he doesn't clam up he just says, well, let's just deal with it and let's, it's an opportunity. And there's nothing about that that is, is you know, PR. No. Farrell genuinely looks at that and goes, this is an opportunity. And he, he, you can imagine he's grabbing one of the young lads for a side chat and saying, are you up to it? Like he made his and debut at 16. Yeah. And he's, that means he's been playing or coaching rugby for 31 years. The in-depth knowledge he has about a squad and a team dynamic. Mm. He's got an extraordinary emotional intelligence. We're very lucky to have him. He's a special man building a special team. And maybe, maybe, maybe he just learned a little bit from how Joe Schmidt used to get rattled by the uncontrollables on the morning of a match, such as a bus arriving late in Murrayfield. He wants the bus to arrive late so he can find out how they react to it. Mm. It's quite... And you're right, it probably does take the pressure off. Mm. Mm. It does seem like he was quietly watching the Schmidt era, taking in the good stuff, noting the less good stuff, does, all that it? experience. It does. Yeah. Because uh, Bernard Jackman was on the rugby pod and Andy Good and Jim Hamilton were saying, give us a sense of like with it, the culture, what, what's Farrell done? And uh, Jackman obviously has his, his contacts and has great insights. And, you know, he was saying, say mention of Murray and, and Murray's uh, dedication to the group for instance and Conor Murray would have every right over the last 18 months to hate the side of Irish camp he's gone from starter to he's gone from Lions captain yeah. to not starting for Munster yeah. Be, not even being the 23 for Heineken Champions Cup yeah. game for Munster and so he'd have every right to be like mm. I'm sick of rugby and mm. you know what Andy Farrell's overseen my demise to hell with all this instead you know this week of all weeks he feels such a loyalty to the group and wants to perform and Jackman was saying for instance despite Murray losing his place that when it was his 100 cap against South Africa, the reason he started is, it's your 100 cap, Irish rugby owes you this. Mm. And, you know, that kind of a gesture. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, and this is, to your point, Sherry, this is somebody who's been in rugby dressing rooms all his life and understands how they operate. So if somebody's making their debut, often that person making their debut is like, well, come think I might get on the bench or I'm on the bench I think I'll get on do I ring my school teacher do I ring my aunt my uncle do I get everyone up and then look like a plum if I don't get on and everyone's wasted the journey so now what Farrell will do with somebody making their debut is that player is invited to get all of their circle anyone they want to bring to the team hotel will be presented with their cap by if you're a number 10 like Crowley Sexton will present it to you if you're a prop Furlong will present it to you mm-hmm. and, and, and say things about you and Jackman said that he spoke to the parent of one of the players who enjoyed that Thursday debut evening, who said it was one of the most emotional nights mm. of his life. Mm. It was just, it blew him away. If if my son never plays again, it actually does. It was just amazing. Now imagine what the, all of these things and, and the, the emotional aspect of the group. Uh, he's nailing it. Yep, he and is. And you, this, you think back to both Peter Armani when he was not starting in the team. 
when Jack Conan was eight and Caelan Doris was six and he was on the bench, um, I think it was about two years ago, a year and a half ago, described, this is the best squad I've ever been a part of. Mm. Well, um, you're a Munster captain, I'm not sure you should be saying that. Yeah. Keith Earls said the very same thing. Mm -hmm. David Kilcoyne has said the very same thing. Healy. Keen Healy has said the very same thing. Ian Henderson told me the very same thing. Like it's, mm. they've, what was David Kilcoyne's great line? And a few of them have used it. You can be yourself in this group. Mm. You're encouraged to be yourself. So that this innate, forthcoming honesty amongst them all between themselves that they can just be themselves. And that must make them as tight as that on the pitch as well. Journalists, lesser end of the curtain house, enclave as well. Um, well, the, we're, all the media gigs now take place in the in the adorable HPC with yes. a cafeteria that is like something out of a hospital yeah. or a school. Yeah. So I think you made the hotel a bit more of a relaxed Probably, yeah. place as well. You're not going to blame us for the previous... <laughs> well, Joe Schmidt would. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, on, on the um, 38 defenders beaten by France, yep. so I know we're like, massively on top here in this game. I was never that comfortable either at times. I mean, France were cutting loose various occasions. Did you feel the Irish defence was under stress? 26 of those missed tackles yeah. were on three men. <laughs> you, can name, you can guess the three. Penno. Damien Penno, accounted for Dupont. 11 of them. Right. Ethan de Moutier, the left yeah, one, yeah, yeah. nine of them, and Dupont, six. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it was those three primarily. Because four tries to one could imply shutout. Or was it a shutout and, and, and what the defenders they beat were more superficial? Well, to me, was you could, okay, it's, it's not exactly the truth, but you could consider it a shutout. It's very manageable to fix what happened because France had so many, I described it on, on Saturday postgames, clangor mistakes in their own territory. Loose passes, not, not even hitting the man, bouncing on the ground. Yeah. And two exits led to two, two of Ireland's four tries, two bad exits. Bad yeah. exits, like yeah. the, that's yeah. of, of their own doing. They yeah. certainly didn't tactically construct to make the huge errors, but the, the fix for the Irish team is to dial down the hunger and the chase a little bit because we lost the integrity of our defensive line and our spacing. So an individual got excited and went, I'm going to go. Mac Hansen's chase on the, the left winger when he misses the tackle. Yes, that will be highlighted in the video. You'd and they'll think. just they'll just get yeah. told, okay, you know, next time we're in, we have an opposition under the cash. It's a, it's it's like having a striker and you're trying to tell him not to go for a goal. Like you want, you want people to exploit weakness but not to the extent we were obviously so fired up and maybe for all the reasons that we're saying Farrell yeah. has the emotional pitch of the group right it's it's so switched on that sometimes we need to be colder and say if we'd have just held our line and let them you know furrow around there in the 22 and just have a clearance kick we'd had a line out yeah. 30 metres out but we 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 lost that spacing and that integrity of the defensive line and then suddenly do Mortier um, Penno and, and DuPont, DuPont, like who constructed half of these problems himself, then has the wherewithal and the talent yes. to get himself out. So, yeah, of 28 or 38 missed tackles, you're probably really saying, you know, and that's a group that normally makes 90 to 95 percent tackle completions. I think a lot of it was happenstance because of French mistakes, French quality and, and us slightly being overzealous in our approach there. But that's an very easy fix yeah. from from a, a rugby coaching group with this IQ. There'll be a few in Rome too because Ange Capiozzo is every Capiozzo is every bit as slippery as an eel as Damien Penno is. Damien Penno is arguably the best right winger in the world. As Trevor Bennett was telling me that apparently he likes to smoke and he likes to drink and if they ever can get him fit he'd be some player. You know? It makes you like him even more, doesn't it? But he's, he, can, he can beat 11 men in most internationals. Yeah, okay. They beat Australia last November entirely because 
Jalabert came off the bench, threw a wonder pass, and Damien Penno did his Damien Penno thing. And they do rely a lot on the individual brilliance of Dupont, of Entomac, or Jalabert when he comes on, of Penno. And they don't have that individual brilliance in the midfield. They don't particularly have it at fullback. Ironically, Caposo's French born and reared of Italian paternal grandparents, and he's ar- he arguably would be a markup on either Jaminet or Ramos, and ironically all three of them playing mm. to lose. But what I'm saying is, you, you're, you're going to miss tackles on Damien Penno, and you're going to miss tackles. You, you can collar Antoine Dupont for 78 minutes, but the point being that France relies so much on individual brilliance and scoring tries off their defence, that if you actually look at the tries they score, when, they, when they're behind and they have to try and make a play, they came up with a, a strike move off that line that I was talking about, Bundyaki makes a good read in midfield. James Ryan, who's colossal, stops when he comes down the side. Casey, little Casey even does a tackle on the wing. And then Jalabar has to go for the chip, which Hugo Keane reads, and then bang, Caelan Doris does his thing. Yeah. And they're actually, I know this sounds weird, there's one of the reasons why I was so confident that Ireland would win last week. This French team actually needs to develop its attack. Mm. I was talking to Laurent Caban, I'm not name dropping, just happened to be introduced to him in the Lansdowne Clubhouse afterwards, in the Lansdowne Bar, and he absolutely agreed with me. They actually don't have a passer in midfield. They're missing Dante, as Raj said, um, but they they could probably do with a little bit more X factor at fullback, and they just need to develop their attacking game a little bit more as well, and maybe they don't have quite have the forwards like Antonio and Willem said that I was talking about earlier, who are not really built for that kind of game. And if you're only going to have five scrums a game, th- this will be a wake up call for them too, and they're a fascinating case study. Mm. I'd be interested to see how they react to this and what they do from here. Mm. And and briefly, Galtier wasn't happy, it seems, with what the players did on the field. No. Is there a, a friction there? No, it's just that if you look at France, and uh, even over the last two years, and certainly last November, they play virtually no rugby in their own half. Mm. That try by Penno was very much out of character and kind of forced on them, by the way. The, it Was there a charge down kick and the build up to it or something? And then there's a kicked and it went from there. That, yeah. That's right, that's yeah. right. It was, so like, but Galtier, uh, seemingly afterwards, well, why, was that a loss to explain why they suddenly ran everything? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. The biggest game of the year yeah. thus far? Mm. And then they reverted to type, like Ramos kicked the ball every time it came near him. I think Ramos is playing with the handbrakes on. He doesn't play like that for Toulouse. I mean, it was notable they did that more in the second half. Big time. Potentially after their coach said, what the hell is going on? Yes, that's, that was my read. What do you think? Yeah, I, well, I think um, I played under John Connolly, who coached Australia, Queens and Reds and Bath. And he had a template for how his teams played, and it was pick a gigantic front eight, never kick the ball in your or never pass the ball in your own half. And I mean, you're talking regulations here. You are not passing the ball <laughs> to your number twelve. You're kicking it, and it's highly effective. Like, and you know, he took over a Bath team near the bottom of the Premiership, got up to the top two within about four months. And it's it is has it has always been a highly effective strategy in rugby to pick a gigantic pack yeah. and a kicking ten and don't play in your own half. And I, it's just really surprising to see a French team with the quality at their disposal having the same approach. And it's more surprising again seeing Galtier who didn't play like that as a player, yeah. but he's very clearly um, putting that imprint on their side. I mean, pulling them pulling them back from one of the great tries scored in Lansdowne Road and being critical after the the idea that they shouldn't have been running it and they should have been but, kicking but it. But he, right? he, he might argue it's been very effective all of last yes, year. Exactly. And, and if we had played that way mm-hmm. against Ireland, more scrums, more stop start. Yeah. Well, actually also, yeah, you're right. I agree. I mean, he's also picking 
the, the the type of player that isn't he's not picking a, a, a really nuanced distributor type centre. He's not picking flair fullbacks. He's got two two brilliant wingers there and he's got Villiers who's out injured and there are people out injured, but they're not typical French team in terms of their attack or creativity they're very contained they're very if if we exclude France and say traditional northern hemisphere style rugby um, or even the John Connolly approach it's just it's not very French but it's highly effective it's slightly French in the way that they're so lethal off turnovers and that's yes. why their, their defence is so effective they score a lot of tries off their yeah. defence because then they're just switching to this automatic let's play heads up off the cuff rugby and they're very very good at that but in terms of actually constructing tries the way Ireland yeah. do but then again, like the Canterbury Crusaders, with, with for years have had this culture of having an incredibly aggressive defence, tackling, um, you know, very low missed tackle rate, very aggressive at the breakdown for turnovers and scored a huge percentage of their tries just from turnovers and opportunism. They don't, they used to play, you know, not, not much rugby deep in their territory, kick long, big pack. You know, they'd Mertens at 10, they'd Carter at 10, huge kickers. So like, it is a reasonably good approach to knock out rugby. So maybe he has a right in being critical of them going off piste and going more French in inverted commas okay. because the functionality and the impact of what they've done in the last 14 months hasn't been built on flair. No. It's been built on discipline. And the other caveat is, talking to Lauren Kaman, he made a very good point after as well and so does a friend of mine, Nigel Osborne, he's been saying it for a while about them. They have three six and, six and a halves in the back row. Okay. They've no real seven like Josh van der Fleer. Jalange, mm. Olivant and Aldrid are all kind of similar kind of players. They could all play eight or six, but none, none of them are real seven. And also, I was interested to hear your interview with Raj talking about the graphic you saw where 11 of the Irish players have played considerably less minutes than their French counterparts. I would say, I'd be fascinated to see Aldrid versus Doris one, because I'm pretty sure Doris has played way less rugby and is much fresher. There was another argument we had on behalf of Ireland last yeah. week. Ireland would be so much fresher as well as being more cohesive. Don't forget, they went to New Zealand last summer. The French frontliners took the summer off and sent a third-string team to Japan. So that New Zealand tour stood to Ireland as well. Yeah. But in all of this, we have to remember that come the World Cup, not only is every game the France play going to be in home soil and all the key ones in Paris, but they're not going to have any top 14 obligations whatsoever in the build-up of that tournament. So it will be a much more level but playing field that, in that terms the, of minutes played. the Eddie Jones argument, isn't it? Yes. Ireland have an advantage three years and nine months of the World Cup cycle and then we get a fair crack in advance of the World Cup so mm. uh, we'll see what happens in a couple of months time we have to take a very short break Jerry and Andy staying with us rugby and off the ball with thanks to Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team Wednesday Night Rugby on Off the Ball with Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us Welcome back, Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times and Andy Dunn are still with us. We'll just in this last five, ten minutes, just pick through a few uh, bits of news from uh, across the last 24 hours or so. Hugo Keenan has been given a central contract. I mean, <laughs> least surprising news of the year, I think. What 20, took them so long? <laughs> I know. 26 years old now. I mean, I, like it, it just shows you, you really do have to earn it because he's played in 27 of 29 games, mm-hmm. um, made his debut age 23. It is interesting that the IRFU, I suppose a parallel might be uh, a young player at a Premier League team, if he suddenly blossomed across 2020 into early 21 the way Keenan did, they would sit down straight away in part because the agent would be banging on the door and say, OK, 
obviously even though you have three more years in the contract we're going to upgrade you and treble your wages and sign a new four year deal that doesn't seem to be happening in the IRFU corridors it's Hugo you'll wait until your contract's expired is that how it goes? Yeah that's how it goes I think I'm right in saying that the world player of the year is not on a central contract so how much, like, would they be on dramatically less money? Than no, they'd be on still pretty good money. Okay. But it would be better money for sure when they move to a central contract. No, they don't. They, they trimmed them back a few years ago and they've, kept, they've been pretty lean and mean about them ever since. I don't think Gibson Park's on a central contract either. How many players are on central contracts? I knew you were going to ask me that. Sorry, I think it's about 18. Why did you bring this? I think it's about 18. 18. It's less. It used to be in the mid-20s. Yeah. Back in the day. So it's nothing like that anymore. I guess, I mean, if you're Hugo Keenan and you're at Leinster and you're being paid okay, mm. and yes, you would warrant a central contract and they say, no, nah, we'll give you one in two years. What are you going to do? What's mm. your leverage? Mm. You don't have much. The only leverage is, you know, I could go to France or England and get double, but then you're not going to play for Ireland. So they, they kind of have them between a rock and a hard place. I mean, there's going to be a scenario, I'm sure, that develops where someone who's a bit more commercially driven or hard-nosed may just jump, but it's it's not going to... Hope burst the dam and yeah. everyone's going to leave. They just have it fairly rock solid. And that's yeah. why when they get Strong. criticised for only picking home um, players that play for the province, they get criticised for this, mm. like not picking Zebo and picking John Klein or whatever mm. else. Mm. But that's the overriding logic behind it. Because yeah. if, they, if they allow Zebo to go and p- he plays for Ireland, well then what's to stop mm. um, a flight of wild geese proportions? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a tight ship, but I'd yes, say, say, say there are some grumbles. But you hear the stories coming out of Wales at the moment, and you might be bringing that up now, and like, yeah. you, like you have to say the RFU have, after being yes. dragged kicking and screaming into the professional era, once Tommy Kiernan and Sid Miller and people said, right, let's bring them all home and make them the four proud provinces, Irish rugby has taken off as a well-run ship. Uh, just, just on yes. Keenan, yeah. there was a WhatsApp a photo going around WhatsApp, you know, forwarded on many occasions, you know, you see these. And it was a team sheet from Blackrock College, his former school, under 14 C's, uh, a subs bench, Hugo Keenan. Um, and uh, it was nice to see because there's so many players currently, I've seen at 17, 18, 19, give up rugby when they haven't quite Pushed through to sub academy and yeah. academy and all the rest. There's a fella now at 14, for any 14 year olds listen, who was sub on the C team. Like you can develop and change and adapt, um, and you know, you're still young, and that's a fella who's just phenomenal at a later age. Yes. So it gives people hope, young lads in particular and girls, you know. Because you do have late developers as well as early developers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's also the first player to come through the sevens program and win a central contract in 15s. First ever. The first fullback who runs like chariots of fire <laughs> in the great movie from 1924 as well. Ineatonio, uh, three-match ban. He will, of course, attend tackle school. <laughs> I mean, it's good stuff. It's hard not to be cynical, all right. Yeah. Uh, dear. Uh, AKA the coaching intervention programme, but tackle school. So he should be available for the 18th of March. I think it was six initially down to three for, you know, helping people cross the road and stuff like that. Uh, he did admit it warranted a red card and... Uh, I don't know. I mean, is is three weeks okay-ish enough of a deterrent to make him think twice? It perhaps is. Do you need is to it three weeks for three games? It's three weeks. Uh, isn't it? I don't know if it's three games because he's back for the Wales match. Yeah, so well, that's round did, four. I think it's three weeks. Andy. Must be three weeks. Yeah. Then. So it's only two games. Top, top fourteen back. games probably coming to his rescue. Mm. It didn't yeah. make him contrite on the field. He did one or two filthy tackles off the ball. 
later on in the game. Did so he? Yes, really. absolutely. He nailed the portrait, I think, off the ball at the side of a Can't have been that late on. He was off for 45 minutes or so. Well, it 50 later, years, but later. later. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. later. Yeah. It yeah. may not have been Porter. Yeah. He, he nailed someone. I just was one of those moments. I just happened to, I mean, he's easy to notice on the field. I just happened to notice off the side of a rook. And uh, yeah, it was it was a dirty challenge. Like it wasn't, you could argue he got his timing wrong and his intent wasn't bad with the herring you could potentially argue that but 25 minutes later when he's cheap shotting a guy from behind off the side of a rook he didn't show much contrition so tackle school better be on oh, point with him sit up the front row yeah he'd be up the front it's quite conflicting isn't it because if he hadn't sent off the time as he should have been Ireland's win would have been completely devalued and decried it would have been always oh, against 14 men for 15 minutes whatever it was mm. so at least now there's been some element yeah. of justice running because it had it, if World Rugby are going to be serious about this campaign to make the game a safer place and rule out headshots, yeah. Barnes got it spectacularly wrong. And you would have thought, I was surprised, Joe, even when they issued this statement saying that Antonio was going to be cited, it even quoted the ruling and almost saying there and then, before the hearing, Wayne Barnes got this one wrong. And you could see from hmm. Matthew Carlin's reaction as well yeah. that he seemed to disagree with him. What's the point in bringing in touch judges if not going to say Well, it's true. Um, let's debate it another time because, you know, so he's sent off and it does rightly sent off it does ruin the spectacle of 15-15 one of the great matches we've ever seen it does make me increasingly think we should debate you know Matt Williams proposed it initially and I said that is ridiculous no 20 minute red cards are you going to say yeah or 20 minute red card and and absolutely you're not coming back so in the, so, something in this vicinity uh, we can tweak around the details Antonio makes the tackle you say to him this is the this is the new version of a red card where uh, France you're down to 14 men for be it 10 or 20 minutes and Antonio you're not coming back on yeah I think that's a really smart idea and there's a 3 or 4 week ban coming your way but we'll keep 15 against 15 minus the 20 minutes of 14 as a spectacle and just because rugby is now rightly moving to more red cards Matt's winning me always chipping away at me during these games uh, every uh, spring it's making me think maybe there has to be a way to maintain the spectacle and come down very harshly on bad tackles now that the game is going to routinely give out red cards can I ask you go on you one I just think it's a good idea okay Full can, stop. Debate oh. it again can I ask you very one question very quickly about this yeah. Owen Doyle made this point in the Irish Times right World Cup final you have a, this rule comes into place 20 minute red cards Johnny Sexton is taken out by Uni Antonio and in the 20th minute and is off for the rest of the game mm. France replace Antonio at half time France go on and win the match just this is purely hypothetical not a great look for the sport, is it? That's no. also a good point. Although exceptional cases do make for bad law. I mean, that is mm. a disgracefully cynical proposition. But it's a... No, I'm not saying the France would actually do it deliberately. I'm just saying it's a product of it happening. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, there should still be maybe facility for if it's the most egregious, obvious, he's taken the head off sex in, in a deliberate way. Mm. Maybe there's a... That's a foul play. That's a red, red card, as opposed to the high shot red card... Oh, then we're getting into very complex territory, aren't we? It's we complex are, enough it's as complex it is. Yeah. I mean, you've got the black card in GAA. And, Something you know, akin to yeah. that. In a yeah. third colour, maybe. A third colour. Do you know maybe. what I mean, though? Just a key man. Just I understand. John, yeah. Just yeah. a key man in yeah. some team yeah. is put out of the game uh, in the fifth minute. Mm. And the team that convicts the, 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 the is guilty of the red card is back to 15 yeah, no, aside I, after I, 25 minutes. We were playing at the moment, Ross Brennan just come in and we'd win it anyway. Yeah, so. take out who they want. I think in that case, Jerry, there still has to be an allowance for proper red card that is foul play as opposed to you mistimed the headshot black card okay so okay so thinking on my feet here a bit yeah, yeah. okay so maybe bringing the black card you're thinking yeah maybe 
Um, just to finish, extraordinary story out of Wales, who play England on the 25th of February. They may go on strike. Uh, there are 70 Welsh players out of contract at the end of this season, including Welsh frontline players. So strike action not off the table. Basically, what's happened here is that there is a contracts freeze in Wales. Uh, now, Cardiff, Ospreys, Dragons, Scarlets have had no talks with players about extending their contracts. 70 of them are, are sitting around saying, well, I'm, I'm a free agent in the summer. Uh, the Welsh Union have come out and said, actually, we've given the regions permission to have these contract discussions since January. The reason the regions haven't had those discussions is they haven't agreed a budget with the union. So, I mean, the, the union is like talking out of both sides of the mouth. There. We, we've given them permission, but the regions are saying, if I don't have a budget, can't negotiate with Andy Dunn about what I'm paying him and Jerry Thorny what I'm paying him. Uh, you presume the BBC documentary has maybe complicated matters, but I mean, they're also banning Delilah being sung at matches and focusing on things like that. There was one quote from a player in the Daily Mail. So, I mean, how's your morale, Wales? Uh, I can't believe I'm five months away from the end of my contract. I'm eight months away from the World Cup. My future is not certain yet. I can't apply for a mortgage. I'm on antidepressants. I'm one big injury away from not having a job in July and yet I'm starting for Wales every week and the union is making tens of millions from these international matches. Astonishingly, I read that quote, it's astonishingly stark, it really humanises it. Good luck like, Warren Gatlin saying, but let's go out and train hard yeah, for this. Yeah, yeah, like, I'd be astonished if it came to a strike and the game didn't sure. take place. Sure. But um, my goodness me, they're in a low ebb, aren't they? Like mm. on and off the pitch, it's hard to think of them this low for quite some time. Like, Gatlin's tenure really pretty much papered hope over the cracks. This is all the unmistakable sound of chickens yeah. coming home to roost, isn't it, for years and years of mismanagement? We, we always said that about Gatland, and I thought, I, well, it couldn't be that bad, but I think it might just have been that bad behind mm. the scenes. Yeah, I wonder, does he privately regret taking the job already? He's two games in, two losses, potentially a strike. And you know, this and English yet. game, they're, they're going to salvage this Six Nations campaign. Mm. It's now or never. It's England at home. It always is with the Wales. I remember Wales once losing all four games, beating England in the fifth game and doing a lap of honour. Like That's how much yeah. they, it means beating England to the Welsh people. They, a lot would be forgiven and forgotten if they could win that game, but it's very hard to see them doing so at the moment, mm. and particularly with that as a backdrop. Mm. That needs to be resolved rapidly. Yeah. Um, quick word on England, just given that they're coming to Dublin. I'm... Mm. Um. They haven't impressed impressed me yet. I think they're a little bit caught between stools uh, in terms of what they're trying to do. Um, I don't think they have their personnel right. I mentioned that it's probably, you know, um, Farrell at 10 isn't the solution to me. Um, they've got capacity, like they've got ability in their club sides and they've got a bigger playing pool to pick from, but they're, they look at little bit lost in terms of what they're trying to achieve and um, they're not a team I can clearly identify what they're trying to achieve on the field that's a bit worrying for them I would have thought um, yeah I'm not yeah, that's I'm, not I'm, good I'm, meanwhile the Scottish Grand Slam remains on mm -hmm. it does it does um, and they now look like Ireland certainly trickiest opponents of the three remaining mm to the promised land of a Grand Slam given not least that it's in Murrayfield and home advantage counts so much for this in this tournament um, I watched the game last night in full Scotland and Wales again properly and it actually they actually weren't that good in the first half at all it dragged down to the Welsh level was the yeah well general that's two games in a row where they haven't done much in the first half in actual fact Wales 
poor and all as they were, with zero creativity, looking very limited in attack. Bigger missed a 40 minute 40 meter penalty that he would normally get from straight in front of the post. And if his pass goes to Rio Dyer with the last play of the first half, he still has a conversion to put them in front at half time. And Wales wouldn't have been flattered to go in front at half time. And then the second half was just vintage Finn Russell. He's just a joy to watch. Yeah. He's just the greatest Scottish player. Certainly the most exciting, entertaining Scottish player that's ever lived. And he's got a really good midfield. Probably, like, they've had loads of different options and different permutations in midfields in the Gregor Townsend era. And I think they've really struck him, particularly with Tupelutu, because he can do that hard carrying job, but he can also distribute. He can put that through that lovely little grubber for Hugh Jones to score a try. Um, yeah, they're looking, they're, they, they were very good in the second half and they, they really put Wales to the sword. But the first half, watching that game compared to what the first half of the Aviva was like watching a different sport. Yeah. Uh, very final question. I'm just curious. Andy, what is Finn Russell doing technically that his passes look so beautiful? Um, well, he pa- he does pass from the inside hip and he's a high elbow. There's a guy called Mick Byrne who coached uh, the All Blacks, a skills coach for two World Cups. And the biomechanics team or the physics team or whoever data science guys came in worked out that the the elbow that the inside elbow that causes the power and generates the spin and force behind the ball needs to be at 96 degrees <laughs> that's what they worked out and so a lot of young players watching a ball, watching a player might not understand why is he getting that pass so beautifully you know the trajectory is fast it's a bullet sexton does it very well is that high that inside elbow is cocked high at 90, around 96 degrees okay. whereas pl- fellas who struggle to pass will swing the arm low the old style Tony Ward Ollie Campbell you sw- swing the hips the hands went below the knees and you just you gave them a kind of a loopy pass to the next guy and you yes. eventually got it to the winger who ran around everyone and scored modern day defences don't allow it so you've got to have a, a different trajectory to your pass and Russell does that very well but the other thing that helps him hugely which is so discernible in that second half for Scotland, is at any one time looking at the French in attack or the English in attack on the weekend, you could see most of their players packed into a 25 metre space, if you were sky cam, pardon the pun. But the the Scottish team are using the entire width of the pitch and they've got players at both extremities, they're filling the space, it gives them the wide angle kicks, it gives them the cross field kicks and it also causes defences to spread out and a bit more space in between for the smart play. So, And it's using the, Finn Russell's strength because we've exactly. seen the passes, he can fire a 30 or 40 minute pass yeah. and his kicking is really passing with the boot, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. so precise. Yeah. No, it's, it's, they are, they cross are, kicks, I'm they are no, I fully get it, yeah. they are, I would be, more than a little concerned about going there playing them yeah they're, okay. they're, they're really quite strong in attack that's a great answer the elbow at 96 degrees oh, it's an education that was beautiful Mick the kick he was called he was 6 foot 7 he was ex Carlton or Sydney Swans Aussie Rules player who just learned his trade I know how to kick an oval ball no matter what way I you want okay. so he would do things like teach us how to curl it along the ground in different directions he had a dead duck you could kick a rugby ball into the air and make sure it didn't spin it was like this the dead duck and he had the capacity to spiral bombs off both feet amazing okay uh, that's a whole other show someday uh, we are out of time Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times thank you very much Andy Dunn pleasure thank you very much rugby and off the ball with thanks to Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us and just to mention 
This week marks the 30th anniversary of the first ever Women's Rugby International for Ireland when they played Scotland in a one-off friendly. That was back in 1993. So three members of that team, Jill Henderson, Therese Kennedy and Tanya Waters, took part in a short documentary we made about that game. And if you check out the Off The Ball YouTube channel, you will find it there. Wednesday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us.